0: This is Ryan Tucker, and welcome to the weekly podcast with Pastor Stephen. This week, Pastor Stephen looks at Romans chapter 9, verses 19 through 33, and it's titled The Potter and the Clay. If you have a Bible today, open to Romans 9. I preached all last service with this vest zipped up, and uh, it was hot. And so I know you guys are a little bit more laid back. And I thought, you know, maybe I can unzip it. And I think I've already sweat through my shirt, though. So if, I find, if you find this offensive, I give you license. Well, no, I don't. Just suck it up. That's all I know. <laughs> I was going to say, I give you license to close your eyes. But no, we're not going there. Not with some of you guys. So I heard about this pastor, and he would preach. And after a sermon, there was a guy that would come. And he would say, Oh, Pastor, that was a warm sermon. And then the next week he would say, Oh, Pastor. And wow, that, was, that was a warm message. Thank you, Pastor, for those warm words. And the pastor, he's like, What does he mean by that? It drove him crazy until finally one Sunday he said, Can I just ask you a question? You talk about the warm message and the warm sermon, the warm words. What do you mean by that? And he said, Well, you can look it up warm means not too hot. The goal is not to have a warm sermon today, but the goal is to light a fire under every one of us as we look at the very words of Jesus. And some folks, when they read Romans chapter 9, you know, like most of us, we say this, well, I just can't understand this, right? Can't wrap my mind around this. Our folks will say, I just can't believe that. And so Paul knows some of these objections are coming. It's almost like he anticipates what the audience is going to say. And so in Romans 19, he starts addressing some of these issues. Uh, Now, we have been for 37 weeks studying the book of Romans, a verse-by-verse study, a series entitled A Life Transformation. And so if you happen to be here on spring break and you just think, oh my goodness, he chose to preach this today because I'm here. No, no I didn't. You should have known what I was preaching. No, I'm just kidding. We're in Romans 9, and God predestined I would preach this before the beginning of time. So, with that being said, look in verse 19 of Romans 9. He says, You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? God. Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have the power over the clay for, from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Now, we'll stop right there. We'll systematically work our way through Romans chapter 9, and we'll cover the rest of the chapter this morning, So we've got a lot that we've got to deal with. There are three insights that we're going to see from the remainder of Romans 9. Again, Paul's saying, I know this is going to be extremely muddy, and I know you're going to be throwing all these questions out, so I'm just going to go ahead and get to it before you even even ask. So with that being said, what is the first insight that we've just read there? It is this. God has a method, and God's method is to mold you. God's method is to mold you. Like a potter takes a clump of clay and shapes and crafts and molds that into a beautiful object, God is doing that with us. God is trying to mold and shape us into something. Now, I understand that when it comes to this molding, naturally, we're like, well, there's just more questions that I have, or there are some difficulties that I struggle with. Well, that's kind of the first thing that we need to understand about this molding. It is frequently confusing. Frequently confusing. Let's see how it plays out. Here is the potter, and the potter will take a clump of clay, plop it down on this spinning wheel, And then he starts shaping and crafting with his hands. And then he's like, man, I need some more water. So he grabs some water and throws the water. And he starts, he's got, oh man, I got too much water now. Let me get some sand. And he throws the sand and I want to get the right texture. All the while, this wheel is spinning. And so he's crafting, right? He's making, he's molding. And then he looks at it and he's like, that's not what I want. And he balls it all up and he throws it down again on this spinning wheel. Add a little bit more water and add a little bit more sand, right? And he's working, he's working. And when he gets it just about right, he says, now it's time to go in the fire. Now it's time to go into the furnace. Now it's time to set the very image that I have been forming. Now, who's the potter? God. God, turn to your neighbor right now and say, I'm not the potter. Some of you are never going to do that. I know that. That's okay. But you're not. You are the clay. I am the clay. Only God is the potter. Now, here's the question that I have. What if the clay could talk to the potter? I'm talking about literal clay. What do you think that clay might say to the potter? I don't know. I could just see the clay saying this. Hey, all this spinning's making me dizzy. (laughs) Really? Can I not come off of the wheel right now? This makes no sense to me. I could see the clay saying this. You're trying to drown me with this water? I mean, are you going to throw more sand on me? I'm so dry and I'm choking. And the heat, my goodness, the heat is killing me. But the potter knows. The potter knows what he is doing. We're the clay. God's the potter. And sometimes we get so confused about what God is doing in our lives, but instead we should trust the potter. Because he knows what he's trying to produce. The reason why we sometimes get so confused and have difficulty with this happening in our life, with what he is doing, and we don't understand what he is doing, is because the process is not complete, it's still ongoing. Which leads us to the second thing that we've got to understand when it comes to this molding method. Not only is it frequently confusing, but this ought to give you some encouragement. The finished product is already seen by God. Isn't it good to know that while we're sitting here as the clay, we're like, what in the world is he making here? This makes no sense. I mean, you know, there's like one little arm and then the leg is too long. And my goodness, is this a bear? Is this a, is this a a, a cow? What is happening here? Understand that God in the mind and heart of God, he already has a picture of what you and I are to become. We've talked about it for several weeks. What is it? The image of Jesus. The image of Jesus. And the reason why we have a difficulty with this is we're still under construction. He's not finished with us yet. You look up here at me and you see Stephen Kyle up here and, you know, I'm not a finished product yet. I'm imperfect. There are things that I do that I don't want to do. There are things I don't do that I do want to do. You know, here I am in this fleshly being and I am not a finished product. And the only joy that I have when I think about the fact that I'm not a finished product and I think about the fact that you're looking at me is I'm looking at you, and you're not finished either. Yet God knows what the finished product will be. We're still in the process. Here's what I think. I think that the view that we have of God that causes us to struggle with what is happening here is the view we have of God is too small. Again, here we are, and we're limited. The Bible's already made it clear. We are limited, right? We're on this side of heaven. We're on this side of glory, and we're saying, I'm going to figure out God. Really? Really? You do not have within this fleshly being the capability to understand a holy, perfect God. And so we kind of we kind of sit there and we say, well, you know, in order for me to understand him, because this is the only way for you really to understand him, all of a sudden you're going to dilute who he is. And so you're going to craft and you're going to create this nice, neat little box. And you're going to put your concept of God in that box so you can understand God. And everything's going really good until you come to Romans 9. In seminary, we called Romans 9 a cherry bomb chapter. Any of you old-timers know what a cherry bomb is? Yeah, we're not talking about a popsicle. There's some pop, but not sickle. I think they've even outlawed them today. I don't know. I don't know. It's been a long time since I bought fireworks. When I was growing up, my cousin and I I'll never forget, you know, uh, our parents went out and our parents bought us a bag full of firecrackers, fireworks, and there was all kinds of things in that bag. And then they gave us a lighter and they said, all right, y'all go have fun. It's amazing we made it growing up like we did, right? <laughs> How in the world? It was crazy. You know, and they're like, we really loved y'all. Really? Are you serious? My cousin and I, we were shooting firecrackers one time. And all of a sudden I'm like, you know what? I bet it would be fun Let's put one of these cherry bombs in the mailbox and light it. (laughs) And so we did. And then all of a sudden it went off. And we just stood there in amazement mouths wide open eyes just wide open it literally it blew the ends out of the mailbox it straightened out the curved portion of the mailbox shot it about 20 feet in the air it was on fire when it came back down and hit the ground his dad heard the explosion he came outside and uh let's just say that um, he, uh, he didn't appreciate what we had done. And he made an impression that still I can remember today. And we had to go out and we had to, we had to buy a mailbox and get it put back on the pole before the mailman arrived the next day. Now, I've since learned it's a felony. <laughs> so boys and girls, do not try this at home. I did not know then. And, I, and I've had people tell me that their statute of limitations is kind of expired when it comes to that. Hopefully, that's the case. Um, anyway. See, see, what happens is we, we've created this little box, right, of our concept of God, and we want to put God in this nice little neat box, and we're like, that's the way that I can wrap my mind around God. That's the way that I can understand God. And then all of a sudden Romans 9 and Psalm 139 and, you know, some other passages of Scripture throughout the Bible that are those cherry-bomb Scriptures, they come along and it just explodes our concept of God. And it blows the ends off of the box, right? And you realize God can't be contained. God is all that great. So instead of us saying, you know what, I'm not going to, you know, I've really got to understand God, because if I don't understand God, then I don't know that I can, I can believe in him. Instead of saying, God, are you sure that you know what you're doing? Instead, we ought to be saying, well, all right, he's trying to mold me. So what? I'm not going to resist and I'm going to cooperate with his work. He knows what he is doing. His ways are beyond our ways. We can try as hard as we may to say, I'm going to understand God. And he's not looking for our understanding, friend. He's looking for our faith. God's method is to mold us. He's the potter, we're the clay. But then he kind of turns and he says, let me tell you now about God's wrath. God's wrath is to warn you. Look there with me, 22, where we left off in chapter 9 of Romans. He says in 22, What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but of the Gentiles. Again, he's asking these questions. As he says also in Hosea, the book of Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people and her beloved who was not my beloved. He's talking about the Gentiles there, the Gentiles. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. So if you're here today and you're not a Jew, he has just made an amazing statement there. He has just said that through Jesus, we can become children of God. All right, verse 27. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as sand of the sea, right? That's the promise he gave to Abraham. The remnant will be saved. We'll talk more about that in Romans 11. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of... It's Sabiof is the word. It means host. Your translation probably says that. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have been made like Gomorrah. So God's wrath is to warn us. Paul is talking about God's wrath, and usually here's how that goes. Hey, I don't really want to talk about God's wrath. I want to talk about God's love. I want to talk about God's mercy, right? I want to talk about God's uh, grace, I don't wanna talk about God's wrath. I wanna talk about God's peace that passes all understanding. Let's not talk about God's wrath. But yet we have to talk about God's wrath because the Bible talks about God's wrath. His wrath is to warn us. All throughout the Bible, we see example after example of his wrath. Let's understand a couple of things about God's wrath. First of all, God's wrath is mixed with mercy and love. It is mixed with mercy and love, and that's very important because right now, currently, God's wrath is mixed with mercy and love. And here's where a lot of folks get a little sideways. They get a little confused by Romans chapter 9 because they sit there and they say, oh, this is confusing. Here's what that means. Well, look what he says up in verse 22. In verse 22, we read, he has demonstrated patience toward these objects, these vessels of wrath. And some folks stumble over Romans 9 because they think that this is saying, well, God has chosen some to be saved, and God has chosen some to be damned. God has created some for heaven, and God has created some for hell, some to be forgiven and some to be lost. That's not what this says. Matter of fact, you read verse 22 and you're like, man, that sounds sounds a lot familiar or pretty familiar or pretty comparable to another verse. It's 2 Peter 3, verse 9. Listen to what He says, He says, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise. As some understand slowness, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Does that mean that everyone will come to repentance? No, it doesn't say that. We know from experience, we know from history that not everyone will come to repentance, that not everyone will be saved. It just tells us it is God's desire that everyone come to repentance. He is saying there, the reason why God is patient when it comes to pouring out his wrath, undiluted with his mercy and grace, is because he wants people to repent and be saved. See, here's what I believe the very next thing is going to happen on the prophetic calendar. I believe the very next thing is Jesus is going to rapture the church. I believe it could happen in any moment, but as I always say, I'm not on the scheduling committee, I'm on the welcoming committee. Can I get an amen? And I believe the next thing is he'll rapture the church. That means he'll take the church, those that are saved, he'll take us from the earth, and then that will usher in a seven-year period, the Bible calls, as the tribulation the tribulation is going to be horrible. It's going to be terrible. You say, well, pastor, we're living in an evil, evil world right now. I would agree with that very statement. But listen to me, right now, that evil, right now, that judgment, right now, even God's wrath is still being diluted. It's being mixed with his love and mercy. During the time of tribulation, there will be a time where no longer will it be mixed with his mercy and love and grace. It will 100% be poured out as his wrath. And if you want to know what that time looks like, you can go to the book of Revelation. You can read there verses, or actually chapters 6 through 18. I'm just saying, ladies and gentlemen, I am so thankful to know that I'm not going to be here for that. I'm thankful that if you know Jesus as Lord and Savior today, I believe the Bible teaches that you're not going to be here for that as well. It is going to be a horrible, horrible thing. If you are here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, today is not the day to delay. Today is the day to say, I turn to you. Today is the day to say, I receive your grace. Today is the day to repent of your sin and to trust in Christ. God has given you another moment. God has given you another sermon. about the gospel of Jesus Christ through an old leather-necked preacher stomping and spitting and yelling, trying to say to you, today's the day to be saved. You have a moment now. You have a moment today. Turn to Christ today. That it will not be there forever. And so this wrath is to warn us And we see it mixed with love and mercy, but we also see God's wrath manifest throughout history. As I was getting ready for this message, honestly, there were so many examples of the Bible that I could have pulled out to show you uh, God's wrath being mixed with his mercy and being mixed with his love. You can go to the book of Genesis, and it says in the book of Genesis that God, he saw how wicked man had become, and he he even regretted that he had made man. And what did he do? He destroyed the earth with a flood. Yet in that, he still showed mercy and grace. Why? Because he saved Noah and his family. We move a little bit further in the Bible, and the example that Paul uses in this passage is from Isaiah, and he's talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah were wicked, wicked cities so wicked that God sent down fire from heaven, and the Bible says destroyed those wicked cities. But even then, his wrath was still mixed with his love and still mixed with his mercy. Why? Because Lot and his family were left without being killed. I could give you more examples. 586 B.C., uh, Jerusalem stood as a beautiful city. The long-awaited temple that David wanted to build that God said, I'm not going to let you do it, yet his son Solomon would build. It was magnificent in its beauty. It was adorned with gold and jewels, and the sun would hit it, and it would just shine all across the Holy Land. And they thought, you know what? Jerusalem will stand forever. The temple will stand forever. And God said, nope, you've been disobedient to me, and I will send my wrath. And so God allowed the pagan Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire to come in. They destroyed Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. His wrath fell, yet his wrath was still mixed with love. It was mixed with mercy because even then there was a remnant of Jews that were still left and they came back later on. And we believe that Paul wrote Romans, I don't know, anywhere from 65 to 67 uh, AD and uh, about three or four years before 70 AD when for the last time Jerusalem was destroyed, not this time by the Babylonians, this time by the Roman legions and the jews were killed and the jews were scattered all throughout planet earth and for 1700 years they didn't even think about going back to the holy land but eventually they did god's wrath mixed with his love and mixed with his mercy and so All throughout history guys all throughout history God is giving example after example after example and here's what he is saying he is saying pay attention I want you to learn something I'm teaching you something here it is I judge sin I judge sin I'm giving you a warning I'm letting you see my wrath, but even in my wrath, right? I'm still diluting it with my love and with my mercy and with my grace. I judge sin. Let's say today after church, you're in a hurry to go where you're headed. And uh, you're, you're, you're driving just a little too fast. And you come up on... A policeman who's pulled over a car and they have their lights on, and he's standing outside and you can tell he's writing them a ticket. What do you do when you see a police car pulled over another car and it has its lights on? Well, logical people would slow down. I know we have some illogical people in this room. But a normal, sane individual would say, Oh man, police cart, slow down. You may not even be speeding, and you're like, Oh, slow down. Slow down. Why? Because it's a warning. People who speed, if you get caught, you're gonna get a ticket. And so you see that warning, and you're like, all right, I'm going I'm to back off just a little bit. All right, I'm going to slow down. I don't want to happen to me what has happened to that poor soul that I see standing or sitting in their car on the side of the road. And if you've ever been sitting in your car on the side of the road, is that not a shameful time? <laughs> a couple of years ago, I was driving down 23rd, and I'd seen one of our deacons and his wife, and it was just Jennifer and I in our car, and we'd seen them, and he texted me knowing full well I was driving. And so I pulled out my phone, and I'm holding it up because it helps me to see it better. And I'm responding to his text, and there's a portion of 23rd, I don't know if you've driven it, it's not, very, very, you know, it's not a very long portion, to where it's almost like the lane just kind of gets thinner. Or it, it seems that way. And, uh, and I kind of moved over in the other lane. But I, I corrected my mistake really quick. And moved back over. And um, there was a cop car right next to me. And he pulled me over. And he said, what are you doing? I said, you're not going to believe this. <laughs> but I'm a pastor. And, um. And uh, one of my deacons was in severe need of counseling. <laughs> and so I was responding to his text. He said, you're a pastor? I said, yes. He said, you should know better then. Um, I'll give you a warning, is what he said. Put the phone down. That's what God's wrath does. God's wrath is giving us that Warning through all history saying, I judge sin. You say, why is he warning us? Why should we even be concerned about that, about the fact that he judges sin? Because we're sinful creatures. I know that there is a popular view today that goes like this that we're kind of born just inherently morally neutral, and depending upon our background, and depending upon our education, and depending upon our experience, that within itself will determine whether we become morally good or we become morally bad. That is hogwash. It's not true. It's not true. We are born with a sinful nature, and we also choose to sin. No amount of education in the world can make you morally better. No amount of legislation, no amount of anything is going to change the biggest problem that you and I have, which is sin. And that's not a politically correct statement, but it's the absolute truth. And so we look back 3,000 years ago when they would take newborn babies and in pagan worship, they would take those babies and they would sacrifice those babies by throwing them into the fire to their pagan false idol gods. And we say, how in the world could they do something like that? And we've grown so much. We've become so educated. We've advanced so much technologically. We would never do anything like that today. We just call it different today. Today, we call it a woman's right to choose. Today, we call it family planning. Do you see? He says, I'm warning you with my wrath that I will judge sin. Man is no better. Man is no better today. That's what this is saying And so God's method is to mold us, God's wrath is to warn us, and then he continues on, and listen to what he says in verse 30, he's basically saying God's stone is to save you. Look in verse 30, he says, what shall we say then? That, that, That Gentiles, I mean, I find it humorous that Paul's like, okay, what should we say now? maybe even laughing while he's writing this. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith, but Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Now, he has just made a statement. He is not asking a question. He's like, based on these questions that some of you are asking, then what should we say? here's what I will say, boom, verse 30. And then look what he says in 32. Well, why? Why have they not? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I lay in Zion, a stumbling stone and rock of offense. And whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Now, how many of you, you read that and like me, you're like, that doesn't seem right. Why doesn't he say uh, who believes on it? Because it's talking about a stone. It's talking about a, 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 an impersonal stone, a rock there. Why does he say he who believes on him? Because he's not talking about a stone. He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about God's Son, the person Jesus. And he says there, and the one who believes on him will never be put to shame. And so the Bible identifies Jesus as this stone that the builders rejected. And it's kind of using that symbolism, talking about the stone that was rejected when the temple was being built. And then they start looking for this cornerstone. And they're like, where is it? Where? Oh, somebody rolled it off in the middle of nowhere, thinking that it was a misshapen stone, but we can't finish until we have it. That's Jesus. It's the, he's the living stone. And so here's what that means. That God has placed in your pathway a stone. You can't avoid the stone. You can't ignore the stone. The stone is there. It is in your pathway. You have to deal with it. You'll either stumble over the stone or you'll stand in faith on the stone. And that's where your choice comes in. I want you to know a couple of things about this stone who is Jesus. The first thing is this stone causes religious people to stumble. I'm not talking about people who know Jesus. I'm not talking about people who have a personal relationship with Christ. I'm not talking about what what we would call saved individuals, okay? those that are redeemed, those that have repented of their sins and turn to Christ. We're talking about religious people. He has just said the stone, religious people will stumble over what was meant to be a stepping stone. Religious people, religious people like to talk about God. Religious people like to talk about the good Lord. Religious people like to talk about religion. They just don't like to talk too much about Jesus. Several years ago, I was, I was, I was invited, had the privilege and honor to go and to pray to open up the Florida State Senate Assembly to give the invocation. And, uh, and I accepted that. And I received an email that gave me the instructions on how I was to pray. And, uh, And and I still have the email. The email went like this. You know, we we would ask you not to use a specific uh, religious terminology. We would ask you not to uh, rely on uh, verbiage that would be of one particular kind of faith. We would ask you not to pray in a particular God's name, all this kind of stuff. Even gave examples of what not to do. And it's like, you know, for instance, do not pray in the name of Jesus and all this kind of stuff. And so... I replied back to the email and said, hey, listen, I appreciate it, really honored to have this opportunity, but if I can't pray in the name of Jesus, I can't pray because there's no way that I can go to God the Father unless I go through Jesus, Amen. Amen. and <laughs> and, um, and so I received a reply back, and a uh, really nice lady, and here's what she said, she said, I'm a Christ follower too, and, uh, and I didn't write these rules. It's just my job to send them out. And here's what she said, listen, here's what she said. She said, most pastors of Christian churches, they just come and they do what the rules say. But every now and then, we'll get somebody like you. And uh, you know, I'm like, I don't know how to take that. Uh, but I ended up taking it as a compliment. And, and, and here's what she said. Somebody who comes and prays how they feel led. And she said, so I will tell you like I have told them. Once you start praying, they're not going to pull you off that microphone. <laughs> so I interpreted that as sick them. And so... <laughs> And so I did what I do in every public opportunity when I'm asked to pray. I prayed the gospel. I prayed the gospel. Hey, if somebody asks you to pray at work, somebody asks you to pray at school. Hey, if you're the only one in your family that they even consider praying over the meal, it doesn't say much about you. It's just a good indication of your family. (laughs) Haul off and pray the gospel. And I just prayed the gospel. In the strong, powerful name of our Lord and Savior who's coming back again, Jesus Christ, amen. amen. If there is no Jesus, there is no faith. If there is no Jesus, there is no heaven. If there is no Jesus, there is no hope. And people come along and they're like, you're just an instigator. Man, you are awfully narrow-minded. How can you be that way? Well, do you know what the Bible says that you're doing? You are tripping over what is meant to be a stepping stone. You're stumbling over the stone of Jesus. And there are a lot of people that do that. I know in the politically correct world that we live in, it tells us, no, 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 it can't be one way. It can't be Jesus. Just try to be palatable. Uh, let's just try to come and let's just try to embrace it all. The problem is this. In John 14, 6, Jesus said this. This is not something that a preacher said. This is not something that a denomination said. Jesus said this, John fourteen six. I am the way and the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. And I'm here to say today, friend, Jesus is not the best way to get to heaven. Jesus is not the most sincere way to get to heaven. Jesus is not the most worthwhile way to get to heaven. Jesus is the only way to get to heaven per his words. He said it, church. He said it. And if it's not true, then he's a liar. He's a fraud. He's a fake. He himself said, I'm the only way to the Father. So for folks who come along and say, that's okay, you do your Jesus thing and we'll do our thing. And, you know, I believe that Jesus was a great teacher and I believe that Jesus was morally uh, a great individual and I think that, you know, you want to do the Jesus thing, that's okay. You know, and you cannot sit there and say, I think Jesus was a great moral uh, religious teacher that you ought to live your life after and say he's not the only way. He took that off the table if he's not the only way then none of us should follow him because he's a liar matter of fact we'll go a step further Acts 4 12 Acts 4.12, salvation. Listen to what it says. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And that is not the politically correct answer in the United States of America today. Here it is. It goes this way. Well, everybody has their own little pathway to God. You know, these folks have their pathway, and those folks have their pathway, and you Christians, you have your own pathway. And at the end, we're all going to end up at the very same place. And again, the only thing wrong with that is that is not what Jesus said. And you can sit there and say, well, that sounds right, humanly speaking. That sounds right logically, but it is not what Jesus said. And folks will come along and they're like, people like you is the problem with America. You're always stirring something. You're so narrow-minded. I've even had folks that have come along and said, you know what? You're nothing more than a bigot because you say Jesus is the only way. Well, you know what? I'm going to stand on what Jesus said. You can call me bigoted. You can call me narrow-minded if you want to. But I'm going to stand on the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he said. Listen, church, it's not through Buddhism. It's not through Confucianism. It's not through Judaism. It's not through any of those other isms that will one day be wasms, if you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) It's through Jesus. It's through Jesus and Jesus alone. And religious people don't like that and religious people stumble over that. And here is God. God's saying, you've seen all throughout history, that I bring wrath and I judge sin. Right now it's diluted, but one day it will not be diluted. It will be 100% my wrath. But don't worry, there's safety. I've sent a stone. For some folks, it will be a stepping stone. A stepping stone to what? To a relationship with God. And to some, it'll be a stumbling stone. And here's the point of what I think the apostle was trying to communicate, and we'll finish on this. This stone creates safety in God's judgment against sin. Remember the examples that we talked about? Noah, Sodom and Gomorrah, Jerusalem, and the temple. I'm not even mentioning the number one greatest example of God pouring out his judgment and wrath against sin may surprise some of you. The best example that we see is at the cross of Jesus Christ. In case you ever believe that God might be tempted to go a little light on his judgment when it comes to your sin. If a holy God would have ever been tempted to go a little light on sin, and if he would have ever been tempted to hold back just a little bit against sin, wouldn't it have not been when his precious, pure, perfect, only son became sin? But he didn't. He didn't. The Bible says that God placed upon Jesus the iniquities of us all. And so you either stand on the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ, the crucified and the risen Lord Jesus Christ, or he says you stumble over it. And when you do, you will experience God's judgment against sin. And so for me, it's a pretty easy choice. I'm gonna to choose to stand with Jesus. You will say, well, no, no, hang on, hang on now. We need to figure out Romans nine can I tell you the answer to Romans 9? The answer to Romans 9 is the same answer for the book of Romans, which is also the same answer for all the Pauline epistles. That's the letters that the epistle Paul wrote. It's also the same answer to all of the New Testament, and I would submit to you, it's the same answer for the Old Testament. Let's just go ahead and say, it's the very same answer for the entire Bible. It is simply two words. You don't have to have a seminary degree, or you don't have to read a book written by some Dr. Wigglejaw to figure this out. Here it is. Jesus saves. Well, I'm trying to wrap my mind around Romans 9. Go ahead. Jesus saves. Boom. <laughs> Jesus saves. And so we want to sit here and we want to, we want to try to create that little box. So I'm going I'm to put my concept of God in that box and I'm going to figure him out. (laughs) We do not have inside of this fleshly being the capability to understand the holy God that offers us a stepping stone through Jesus. Let me explain it this way. Um, When I was a child growing up, the first movie that I can really remember seeing, a classic, still scarred today, Old Yeller. Old, not old, yellow. Old Yeller. You're like, oh, like O-L-E. No, no, no. O-L Yeller. And, uh, um, you know, a little, little, little alert here, okay? Because I'm about to tell you how this goes. Warning, warning. If you're planning on going home and watching Old Yeller this afternoon, I've just spoiled it for you. So there was a family and the dad left to go on a cattle drive. And, you know, the mom and the kids were left there. And so they get this dog. This old, yellow, mangy mutt named Old Yeller. And I don't know if they adopted him or that he adopted them or whatever. And so, you know, he kind of protected the children and the and the family, and so there's a time where a mountain lion tries to attack, and Old Yeller jumps in and runs that mountain lion off, and there's a time when a bear tries to attack, and Old Yeller jumps in and runs that bear off, and so I'm watching the movie. I mean, I'm really, really young. I'm really, really young. I don't even remember the age, and you know, I'm kind of watching the movie. I'm kind of not watching the movie, and I'm like, oh, what a great dog. Here's what I'm thinking. I'm going to ask for a dog at the end of this movie, and you know, and They'll they'll finally agree to get me a dog, and this will be great. And then I'm watching the movie, and then lo and behold, the boy takes his rifle and shoots Old Yeller. And I just burst into tears, and I look around the room, and like everybody in my family was crying. My dad, that I, I, I very seldom have seen cry in life, had a single tear running down his cheek. I mean, come on now. <laughs> if you don't cry at old yeller, you are a heartless Baptist. <laughs> and I can remember saying to my dad, why didn't he shoot old yeller? Why did he shoot the dog? And my dad's like, well, because the dog had rabies. And I'm like, oh, I didn't know what rabies was. Have a clue. I'm sitting there thinking, why did he shoot his dog? And then got into school and you know, I don't remember what year in science or sitting there and we're learning about stuff and all of a sudden we learn about rabies. And they're like, hey, yeah, by the way, if a dog has rabies and a dog bites someone, they could kill them. And I'm like, oh, that's why he shot his dog. <laughs> yeah, I get that now. I, I was limited. See, see, listen to me. We're on this side of glory. We're trying to figure out a God who's like, yeah, I know how this is turning out. Nah, nah, let me wad it up and start over again. But I know where it's going. And we're like, what are you doing? Oh, wait, 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 wait. I know why God's doing what he's doing. Yeah, yeah, I've already put him in my box. He's in my box. And then we sit there and we're like, "Well, let's, let's talk about, whoa, whoa, Romans nine. Wrath, 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 wrath. Oh, I got to expand my box. I'm going to build a different box. Cherry bomb, boom, where do I go now? Psalm 139, what? There is no way that you can adequately give God the glory that he deserves thinking that in this life you will understand Him. God is not looking for your understanding and acceptance. He's looking for your faith and obedience. And so one day when we're finally in the presence of the stone, we'll be like, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's what you were doing. Yeah. I didn't have a clue back then. Wow. That's what you were doing. I always find it interesting because folks will say this. They'll say, you know what? Man, when I get to heaven, I've got some questions I'm going to ask God. (laughs) Man, I hope we're close to each other when you decide to start doing that you're not going to be asking God questions. The Bible says this, that we're all going to fall down like dead men and women in the very Shekinah glory of God. You know, there was one guy in the Bible by the name of, what was his name? Job. Remember, he's like, hey, God, I've got some questions. And what God say? Okay, all right, Job, before you ask your questions, let me ask mine. Question number one, where were you when I threw the stars out in the middle of the universe? Job's like, I've got no questions. (laughs) Forget it, forget it. And then most of it's the inner struggle with Job, right? Here's what I'm saying. Jesus saves. How about we get excited about that? How about we agree that the greatest message the world has ever known is Jesus saves. And when we're in the very presence of this stepping stone, we're not going to worry about it. It's all going to pale into comparison to the very fact that God's going to say, and here you are, done. 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 So how about instead we quit saying, hey God, what is it you're trying to do? Hey God, what, what are you accomplishing in this? Hey God, there's some things I don't understand. And how about instead we just say, well, I know he's up to something and he's never failed me yet. And I'll just keep on trusting him because he's the potter. And I'm the Clay. Hey guys, this is Stephen Kyle. And I want to thank you for listening to our podcast today, Unchangeable Truth. This is a ministry of Highland Park Baptist Church in Panama City, Florida. And we would love for you to visit us if you ever find yourself in the Panama City area. Our address is 2611 Highway 231 North you can also learn more about our church and its ministry by going to our website, and it's park.org. There you'll learn more about what we believe, what we teach, about the gospel of Jesus Christ. There'll also be a sermon archive there so you can go and listen to various sermons over the last several years. As always, we would love to talk to you about your relationship with Jesus Christ. So feel free, shoot us an email, info at highlandpark.org if you'd like to learn more about Jesus and what it means to follow him. Our prayers are that you would draw near to Christ, that this podcast would be used to point you to Jesus and to help your faith grow and your walk increase. God bless you guys. Thank you for listening.